So this random afternoon in the summer of 2016, I was mindlessly scrolling through my newsfeed from my phone, and this curious story caught my attention. It was something about the president of Somalia wanting to develop their tourism business to help boost their economy. And it actually already clicked past the article. I was skimming on other stories by the time these rather incongruous words kind of finally seeped into my consciousness and stuck there. I'm thinking Somalia and tourism. Now, I admit that I did not have a lot of knowledge of Somalia at the time. And to be honest, just any word association game with the word Somalia, the only words that would pop into my mind would be like Civil War, Black Hawk Down, Al-Shabaab, Drought, Refugees, Pirates, but definitely not tourism. So my curiosity kind of got me searching back to the article and I discovered that it wasn't an article about Somalia at all. It was actually a story about Somali land. So I'm thinking, what is Somali land? Is that like, it sounds like a Disney theme park or something within Somalia, or maybe it's a cultural exhibit, a Festival of Nations event, I don't know. But my curiosity led me into another Google search to discover that Somali land is in fact a country. And it has been for the past quarter of a century. And I will be the first to admit that I was in a bit of a state of shock because I kind of pride myself on being this world-traveling cultural mini-expert of sorts. And it was kind of killing my ego that there's this country out there that I don't even know about. And it's been there for a quarter of a century. And uh, anyway, it's located in the northwest corner of the Horn of Africa on the east coast, um, Somalia and Somaliland had a civil war and uh, Somaliland broke away in 1991. They formed their own nation and they actually have their own democratic government, their own military, police force, even currency. Um, it's also, according to Google, known for beautiful beaches along the Gulf of Aden, desert scenery, uh, ancient caves with 7,000-year Neolithic art, uh, friendly people, peaceful environment, despite, of course, that they are arguably located in one of the most volatile regions on the planet. But, you know, that that's pretty impressive. Their biggest challenge seems to be that they're not internationally recognized by the rest of the world yet. And with no UN representation, no international banking, no outside investment, it's going to hold them back economically in a way, no matter how hard they try. So... That's one thing that they're aiming for. But I'm just thinking about this concept of tourism and how, as a peacemaker myself, I've always thought of tourism as one of the greatest ways to create a more peaceful world, especially when it comes to underdeveloped countries and even failed states. Well, first, the economic boost is obvious because tourism circulates money. Uh, it brings in foreign dollars, circulates it at many levels of society, like you know, bringing business to the airlines, obviously, okay, well, there's, you know, the whole airline industry, but all the way down to the guy who works loading luggage, uh, hotels, all the workers there, cleaning, cooking, pool cleaners, drivers, everything that stocks hotel rooms, furnishing sheets, towels, services, tour guides, translators, as well as other parts of the transportation industry, taxis, the guy who runs the local gas station to food industry, restaurants, local food production, farmers, stores, souvenirs. Um, and the money that comes, it also helps build better infrastructure to maintain the industry, such as better roads, sanitation, stuff like that. You know, poverty or even just lack of economic security really is a huge contributor to failed states from corruption to disease to, um, you know, becoming terrorist havens. Just Poverty is, you know, it just breeds 
all these bad things. So anything that would economically improve that is great. But there's also this psychological boost that occurs around tourism. And it, it really helps this cultural pride grow. Like we have something that other people want to see. And it becomes a power influence, powerful influencer that can create a shift in the community's collective consciousness. Sort of like uh, when when you the city hosts the Super Bowl or a country that hosts the Olympics, there's this community pride that takes hold in the minds of the people when they know that the world's coming for a visit. And it's exciting to see other people valuing where we live. It also piggybacks again on the economic impact, which is when investment in infrastructure grows, roads are repaired, neighborhoods get facelift, new developments spring up, supporting industries advance, and people are watching the development of the communities grow. This boosts morale, um, even across America. Just whether visiting New York City, Yellowstone, or you know the town with the world's largest ball of twine in Kansas, there's this sense of pride that happens to the locals when visitors come. And a third really important part uh, about that gets a boost is the peace building boost that occurs due to increased exposure to new people and ideas. Because tourism doesn't just circulate money, it circulates people and culture and ideas. It shrinks the literal and perceived distances between people, as well as the polarity that can fuel a lot of cultural conflict. When people are apart, away from each other, that's where distrust grows. But uh, tourism kind of brings people together. People in these who live in these less developed countries, they often have like a very smaller point of view of the world because they're not getting out and they're not they're not exposed. So they develop a broader point of view of the world, as well as the rest of the world starts seeing them as people instead of the statistics of a failed state or pirates or terrorists or starving children who need to be saved. And this is a really important concept in the world today where cultural divisions are becoming more and more exploited, labels placed, fear sown. We're living in, in a world where, you know, a lot of tension is growing from the polarity. And actually, in the United States, immigrants, and well, particularly Muslims, we know that they're targeted by fear mongers. And uh, Somalia and Somaliland are part of the proposed travel ban, uh, especially with Muslim countries. Um, tourism would address a very, you know, important psychological isolation of the Somalis on all sides by opening their culture up to the outside. And interestingly, as, as an aside, I live in the state of Minnesota, where there are apparently more Somali immigrants than anywhere outside of Somalia. And uh, they're living in urban areas as well as smaller rural towns. And they're slowly assimilating. But, you know, in a lot of cases, it's a very long slog. Most of them have fled the Civil War back home. A lot of education been stunted from that. Illiteracy high. Many have lived in refugee camps or they've grown up just even as nomadic goat herders uh, living in just very, um, you know, remote, remote places. So trying to catch up to the fast paced life in this modern digital age in America. It's like going from the, you know, 15th century to the 21st century overnight. And, you know, of course, like other new immigrant groups trying to make their way, they stick tightly together. But, you know, with the Somali immigrants, you know, they, they dress differently, they worship differently, they eat differently. There's you know, a lot of psychological and physical divide that doesn't get bridged easily uh, with the, the locals. And, you know, a lot of conservatives feel resentful of these differences. 
But what I also think is problematic is is the more progressive liberals who, you know, aren't you know resentful of of the the, the presence of the Somalis, but they're oftentimes seeing them as you know charity cases more than they see them as peers. And I think that there's this unconscious acceptance in the U.S. that grows that we're the heroes and the problem solvers. We see the world's poor as people who need our help, but we rarely, if ever, see them as the ones who could be helping solve the problems if they had the resources. Uh, For example, last year I attended a Feed My Starving Children event, and uh, it was at the St. Paul Convention Center, this massive facility that also houses, you know, rock concerts. It's just huge. And on this day, it was filled with hundreds of people volunteering, student groups, uh, corporate groups, uh, employees wearing company shirts. There were children's birthday parties there. And uh, this is pretty common. It's, it starts out with kind of a, well, I, kind of, I call it kind of a bipolar pep fest where the leaders are giving these quick overview, very grim statistics of the starving Somalis in these refugee camps and showing just these like really intense slides and, and it's very sad. Um, and, and we're told how far each box of the dried food that we're about to pack is going to go to help these starving children in Somali who, who need our help. We're going to pack thousands of boxes for them, thousands, more than ever before is our goal. And then the music turns up and the hairnets and plastic gloves go on. And for the next couple hours, it's like this fun, festive atmosphere. And everybody's, you know, kind of having fun and packing and, you know, boxing and carrying and whatever. And I, I mean, it's great, but I just remember feeling so conflicted, like, Yes, yes, triage is important. People are dying. People need help. But somehow there's this huge chasm that gets formed between all the people who are seeing themselves as the heroes and these these kids on the other end, the receivers of the aid. And, you know, I maintain that how we feel about ourselves is at the core of our identity and our identity is everything. And it was really obvious how the volunteers felt. Well, we felt empowered and, you know, we're going to go back to our day thinking I'm, I'm a good person. And the corporate volunteers, they just boosted their stock value from good PR. That's great. The students who participated are going to use this on their college apps and that's going to be great. And even the birthday party kids who had their parties there, they, they're going to get praised for how selfless they were for spending their day helping others. And the imp- imprint on their psyche is completely positive. But I'm thinking, like, how are these Somali children on the other end feeling, you know, after after they've had their food and uh, and they've they've survived for another week or so, you know, but what's being imprinted on their psyche? And after they've eaten, are they going to be feeling grateful for the help of these, you know, kind Americans who sent the food? Or, you know, I mean, are they going to feel like victims or just helpless that they can't feed themselves and they're incapable? They are, are they going to feel that they have no hope other than hoping for another box? And then what happens? You know, where does this go into the future? So anyway, back to my story, I have all these thoughts just swirling in my head from reading this article, and I'm just so intrigued by both the idea of rebranding and marketing Somaliland to the outside, because I think it's genius, as well as just forming my own new psychological connection with their culture. So now I'm Googling tourism companies in Somaliland and looking at photos, studying rates and what routes to take and what are my visa requirements. Next thing I know... Uh, on the phone with my travel agent and uh, 
By August, my plane was touching down in Hargeisa, the capital of Somaliland. And as arranged, my colleague and travel partner, Andy, and I, we were met by a friendly English-speaking guide named Bedri, as well as our armed escort. Uh, one of the requirements of touring Somaliland is having an armed guard with you everywhere you go. And uh, I'll be the first to admit that it takes some of the feeling of freedom out of travel when you have this guy looming next to you all the time with this, you know, AR-15 assault rifle. But I did understand. We're in the corner of the world where, despite how progressive the country is, stuff happens. And, you know, bad things can happen. And it's a poor country. And uh, people are still living in poverty and, and foreigners you know, they're going to attract attention. So looking at the big picture of their international recognition and budding tourism industry, having anything bad happen to guests is going to cause an international incident, which could derail everything. So welcome, you know, we're going to welcome the idea of this, uh, this arm guard. But anyway, over the next few days, uh, it was great. We cruised across the country, through the deserts, in our Land Rover, and we explored these ancient caves of Laskiel, collected seashells while waiting in the Gulf of Aden and shopping for exotic fabrics in these urban markets, eating goat curry on the patio of our luxury hotel. And it was just a very, it was a very chill experience. It was great. Okay, yes, of course, it's over 100 degrees. It's August. But it was, it was awesome. And I even got my driver to pull the car over a few times so I could pet some camels on the side of the road. And yes, yes, the armed guard was next to me the whole time. But it was awesome. And I could totally see the potential of Somaliland as a tourist destination. Miles of coastline, marine life, good climate, history, great food. And I imagined, you know, in my vision, sightseeing tours and study trips abroad and people getting connected and money circulating and uh, t tourism coming and little by little this country really, you know, pulling itself onto the map. So anyway, on the second to last day, though, I had this very serendipitous chance to stop by a school where that we had heard about. It's called the Abarso School. And I did not know about this until we were there. But it's this totally progressive private boarding school for Somaliland's best and brightest. And their mission is to prepare them to be future leaders by pushing them through an aggressive education plan. Uh, the school was founded in 2008 by an American named Jonathan Starr. And he had this idea to help that didn't involve straight up charity. Uh, it involved real investment in the kids, not giving them food and not just giving them supplies like pencils and backpacks or even just the schools themselves, but real tools like teaching and coaching and setting the bar really high, saying, yeah, yeah, we know you're poor, and so what if you're poor? Of course you're going to get over this bar, because we're going to here to train you to do this, and you can do this. And just, you know, approaching these kids like the opposite of your victims. It's like, no, 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 you're heroes, and we're just here to help get you there, okay? So, and the statistics were grim. I mean, at this time, you know, about 100% of the schools had been destroyed by civil war, 75% unemployment, 60% of primary students drop out by fifth grade, um, you know, barely 10% of secondary students even graduate. So, you know, they're, they're starting with a really low baseline, but they're not saying, this is the, the genius part, they're not saying like, oh, you poor, poor kids, like here, we're going to give you all this stuff and we're going to take care of you. 
or even like, you know, we're going to figure out how to help your economy through our foreign policy, you know, initiatives or whatever. It's they're just saying you're brilliant. You can do this. We're here to help you make it happen. Now get your butts in gear. And uh, the, the plan was to make these kids so awesome, they'd qualify for scholarships at elite universities and colleges abroad. After graduation, then the plan is they're going to come back to Somaliland with their degrees and skills to advance their society um, from business to government to healthcare technology. And uh, this, is, this is a genius idea, too. So Andy and I paid a visit to Barso, and after meeting with the headmaster, we toured the campus and sat in on a world history class and we're just blown away. I mean, these kids weren't just smart. They're building robots and designing solar ovens and acing AP calculus and sending their applications to Harvard and MIT and Brown and uh, other Ivy League schools. So we had the chance to sit and chat for a while with this group of 15-year-olds, Amira, Nemo, Abdi Salam, and Abdi Kani, and these kids. We just chatting, hanging out with them, finding what they're, what they're, what's on their minds. And they were just so amazing and bright and funny and cute and cool. And, you know, they're all these straight-A students. And they have perfect English. We spent an hour talking about everything from which countries they were following in the Summer Olympics in Rio to the latest episode of Game of Thrones to the, the drama of the U.S. presidential election between Trump and Hillary. And, um, yeah, they were following everything. They were like teens everywhere, just connected socially with all the latest social media apps, their smartphones. But what totally struck me is how they're all so informationally connected to everything going on in the outside world. They're still part of this unrecognized country. They're unrecognized. Nobody outside their borders know they even exist. And so unrecognized teens living in an unrecognized country in a corner of the world, nobody thinks about unless something horrible news is being shared, famine and, you know, or somebody's going to feed starving children at the food packing event. And it just bugged me that nobody knows these kids who are the ones that actually could put these charities out of business someday. And I mean that in a good way. And even if they get their Ivy League scholarships, which I'm sure they will, they're still matriculating with a class of people who are like, Somaliland? Never heard of it, you know? And it got me thinking back to this list of important things about tourism. And I think that is the empowerment of a society's young people when the world recognizes you and thinks you're cool. Um, young people need the opportunity to feel pride in whatever specialness they have, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant. And so with one more day in town, we thought it would be fun to do a little GSD activity with them, as we often do with the kids we work with in our international programs. We didn't have a lot of time, but you don't need a lot of time sometimes. So, so we wanted to do something that would just really stretch their minds and alter their views of the world and themselves. So we cooked up this plan. We're going to make the first, probably, I think, the first ever Welcome to Somaliland commercial and music video. And the methodology behind creating it was to just give these kids an active role in, in bridging this divide. And uh, it, would, it would give them not just a voice to the outside world, but a chance to welcome others into theirs. So we got permission from the headmaster of the school. We all pile back into our Land Rover and, uh, you know, squished in with the driver and the arm bodyguard and the machine gun. We spend this day cruising around Hargeisa. And the kids took us to... Um, just interesting and important sites, as well as arcades and ice cream parlors, places they like to hang out. 
basically just giving this shout out saying welcome to our country come visit us see what we are all about and just to have this you know overflowing dignity and pride in where they come from and and it didn't matter how humble this place was and and you know it didn't matter that is it going to stack up you know next to tourism in New York City no probably not but that wasn't the point um now I figure these kids also, you know, they're so captivating once we throw this video up on YouTube and it's going to start getting more views and everybody's going to see what Somaliland has to offer. Start calling, maybe they'll call their travel agents. Who knows? Maybe the president of Somaliland will call me to discuss more of my ideas on how to mark their country, market their country. Things will take off. But um, anyway, actually, the best part of this experience is finding out, well, finding out I think that I was right in the way, that just being in Somaliland, even just a week, it was enough to have this whole new view of the Somali culture for me, um, even being back home, the people, the history, the country, you know, regardless, it's not about political or geographic divisions. You know, I just find myself back home getting to know more Somalis in the community, patronizing Somali businesses, restaurants, stores, um, there are no negative associations of famine and pirate and terrorists anymore in my conscious or subconscious. Um, instead, it's really just great memories with some really cool people. And uh, I still keep in the touch with these students from time to time. They're still uh, working on their scholarships and pushing their video counter higher and higher. And the more I think about Somaliland, just even uh, making this recording, I'm now craving a cup of hot chai from my favorite chai vendor at the Carmel Mall named Abdi. So I'm off to go get some chai. Bye-bye.